Hey, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you joining us today, whether you're doing that in person at one of our campuses or online, either way. I just want you to know how thankful I am that you are with us. And in case you missed last week, we have started a six-week journey together called Be the Church. Now, this phrase, don't just go to church, be the church, is built on this idea that the church is not a building, it's not an organization we belong to, but it is who we are. As Christ followers, we are the church, and we are the church not just when we gather, but maybe more importantly, we continue to be the church as we scatter. And we live out our faith best, not just by coming together here, but we live it out best by loving our neighbors as ourselves as we leave this place. And so that's why as a part of this Be the Church journey, there are two things we're doing in addition uh, to the Sunday morning messages and the small group uh, home group studies. One is that we are doing home group service projects. Throughout this six-week journey, we are asking all of our adult home groups to find a place and a way to serve out in the community to meet the needs of people outside the walls of our church. And then secondly, we're doing the big bring where we are asking you to bring in items that will go to our local partners who are on the front lines of meeting the needs of people in our community. So I really hope that you'll jump in, either get connected to a group or if you're in a group, be a part of that service project. As you're out shopping groceries or out in Walmart, just do a Be the Church moment, grab a couple of extra items and then just bring them to your campus where we'll be collecting them over this next month and a half. So it's an exciting journey. I'm excited to be taking it with you. Now, as I shared with you last week, the early followers of Jesus were spread out throughout the Roman Empire. They could be found in villages and towns, these little communities of Christ followers. And while they were a part of the Roman Empire, they were certainly not welcomed by the Roman Empire. As a minority community, they were often marginalized by their neighbors. And one of the ways that the Romans loved to marginalize minority groups was to call them by a disparaging name. They gave all these minority groups sort of these slur names meant to kind of be hurtful or to keep them marginalized. And guess what? The disparaging name was given to the early followers of Christ. It was the name Christian. Yeah, that's right. Isn't that interesting? Because we think of being called a Christian as a good thing, right? We want to be known as Christians, but it wasn't that way in the first century. It was meant as a slight, a slur, because the word Christian in Greek literally means little Christ's. Little Christ, it was their way of, of sort, I guess in today's culture we might say, little junior Jesuses or, or little mini Messiah wannabes. And as hurtful as that name was meant in the first century, if you stop and think about it, it's actually a very good description of who we are to be. No, we're not to be little mini Messiahs, but we are to be more like Jesus 
to develop the character, the attitude, the heart, and the compassion of Jesus. And as his followers, we are to do the things that Jesus did. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said it. Notice in in John chapter 14, these are some of the final words that Jesus gave to his disciples right before he was arrested. And notice what he said. He said, "I, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. You see that? Being the church means doing the same things that Jesus did when he was physically in this world. In fact, that is the purpose of the church, the continued physical presence of Jesus in our communities. That's why we talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus. That's why the apostle Paul calls the church the body of Christ. We are to do the things that Jesus did when he was here physically on this earth. Now, obviously, Jesus did a lot of things during his time here on earth, right? He taught in synagogues. He taught out in the countryside. He healed people who were sick. He showed compassion to people who were struggling. He mentored people so that they could carry on the work. He sacrificed his own wants and desires for the good of others. Those are all things that Jesus did, and they're all things that we should do. But one of the most obvious things about Jesus' life on this earth was he lived on mission. Jesus had a very strong sense of why he was here and what he was to do during his time on earth. And so if we are going to be the church, Guess what? That means we have to live on mission as well. That the mission Jesus had for his life is the same mission we are to have for our lives. And fortunately for us, Jesus spells out very clearly what his life mission was very early in his ministry. In fact, Jesus makes his life mission statement in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app with you, you can turn or click there. If you don't, it's okay. We've printed these these words on the top of your outline. And before we dive into Jesus' life mission statement, I wanna give you a little bit of context around this statement. You know, very little is written about Jesus for the first 30 years of his life. I mean, there's the story of his birth, And then there's that one story when he got lost in Jerusalem at the age of 12. But other than that, nothing is written about Jesus that we have until the age of 30. And so because of that, the assumption is made that Jesus lived in the town of Nazareth with his family. We assume maybe he worked with his dad as a carpenter, but we don't know for sure. But here's what we do know. One day, Jesus shows up at 30 years of age on the banks of the Jordan River where John the Baptist is baptizing people. And it is in that moment that Jesus will begin his public ministry. He will announce the beginning of his ministry through his baptism, and he will prepare for his public ministry through 40 days of fasting and prayer in the wilderness. Maybe you know that story. Through those 40 days, Jesus is tempted and tried. And at the end of those 40 days, Jesus walks out of the desert alone 
and virtually unknown. I mean, other than his family and maybe a few others, nobody knows anything about Jesus. And for the next eight to 10 months, Jesus will travel from town to town and village to village only in the region of Galilee. This small little area, his home state. And in the villages he goes to, he will teach in their synagogue, he will heal their sick, and he will call his 12 disciples to come and follow him. Towards the end of that first year of ministry, for some reason, Jesus decides it's time to go back home, to go back to the village of Nazareth where he grew up. Now, by this time, Jesus has gained some regional fame. People are talking about him. There's rumors about him being able to heal and perform miracles. The, you know, the word on the street is there's a hot new rabbi, right? And so when he's coming to Nazareth, his hometown, there's a buzz in the city. There's an excitement. They are looking for hometown boy makes good and he's coming to town. Now they don't throw him a parade, but the atmosphere is like that. What they do is the next best thing. They invite Jesus to be the guest preacher in their synagogue on the Sabbath. And I would imagine when that Sabbath arrived, the synagogue was packed, right? Going to hear from the hometown hero. Maybe he'll do one of those miracles. Maybe he'll teach one of those cool parables that we've heard about. Maybe he'll heal some of the sick people in our town. I think they were hanging from the rafters on that Sabbath. And when they get through with the music and the singing of worship part of the service, when it's time for the sermon to begin, they don't have a bumper video to show, but what does happen is um, an aide, an attendant, will bring out to Jesus a scroll. Because see, they didn't have the Old Testament bonded together like we do in one book but they did have individual writings of the prophets and the law of Moses. And they had these individual scrolls. And the scroll the attendant brings to Jesus to preach from is what is for us the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And so as Jesus unrolls that scroll, he can pick any passage in the whole book of Isaiah to preach from. And Jesus chooses this particular passage. For us, it's in Isaiah 61, but it's recorded again in Luke 4, 18 and 19. And this is what Jesus reads. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus would have rolled the scroll back up, handed it to the attendant. He would have sat down while everybody else had to remain standing because that's how they did it in those days. The teacher sat and the congregation stood. We've obviously got that completely backwards these days, right? Because I have to stand up here and you get to sit in your nice, comfortable chairs. But I, I get why we do it. Because if I could sit down here and be comfortable, you'd never get out of here to make it to lunch. And so everybody else stands. Jesus sits down and he begins his sermon by declaring that this promise of God is being fulfilled right now and it's being fulfilled in him. So you have to understand this was no obscure passage for first century Jews. 
This was the promise of Messiah. This was their life hope verse. This passage would have been to them what John 3.16 is to us. Everybody knew it. It was a passage of hope. And Jesus said, the hope is here and I am it. Now, when Jesus made that statement, I feel like there was an audible gasp in the congregation. I can imagine people whispering and saying, wait a minute, did he just say that he's the Messiah? The promised Messiah, I don't know. It's what it sounded like. I, I don't know. Actually, by law, when Jesus made that statement, he should have been immediately grabbed, carried out to the center of the village and stoned to death because he committed blasphemy, right? He put himself on the same level with God. But for whatever reason, they didn't do that. They let him go on speaking. Maybe they thought, well, maybe this is one of those parables, those made-up stories, or, or maybe, you know, he is the hometown boy. Let's see what he has to say. I don't know, but they let him continue preaching. And you know what Jesus does? He doubles down on this claim. He declares, not only am I the promised Messiah, but you people of Nazareth, you will not receive this promise because all you can see me as is a carpenter's son. And that is the straw that breaks the camel's back. They do grab Jesus. They carry him out to the outskirts of the city where there is a cliff. They literally want to throw him off the cliff. And Luke just simply says in one sentence, but Jesus walked through the crowd and went on his way. I'm like, wait a minute, Dr. Luke, how did that happen? Was, did Jesus turn invisible? Could the people not see? I don't know, we don't know any of that. So this is a very interesting part of Jesus' life. And there's a lot of stuff we could talk about, but what I want us to focus on is this passage that Jesus read, so this statement that Jesus makes, because this is his mission statement. This is Jesus saying, this is who I am and this is why I came. And the reason I want us to focus on that is because if we're gonna be the church, then Jesus' mission statement must be our mission statement. The things that Jesus came to do are what we are to continue doing in our generation. And as we unpack this, we see four things that are required to live on mission. Four things we must do to live on mission with Jesus. Number one, we have to bring hope to the have-nots. Living on mission requires bringing hope to the have-nots. Jesus said, I've come to bring hope to the hopeless. And we are to carry that message of hope. In fact, notice the first part of verse 18. Jesus says, he, talking about God, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. I want you to circle the phrase good news and circle the word poor. What is this good news? What is this message of hope that Jesus is bringing? It is the gospel message. The message that God loves you and he has a plan and a purpose for your life. That Jesus will die for you for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can be reconciled to the God who created you. The gospel message of hope that you're not an accident and your life is not without meaning. The message of hope that no matter what you're going through, God is with you. You're never alone, even when you don't feel like he is with you. That is the message of hope that Jesus came to bring. That is the message of hope that we are to carry. And Jesus says specifically, I'm bringing that message to the poor. What do you think of when you think of the poor? 
What do the poor look like to you? If I ask you to close your eyes and imagine someone who was poor, what would you see? Most of us think in terms of material poverty, right? The homeless, the hungry, the the people who are under-resourced. They don't have what they need to meet even the most basic needs of their life. And if you look at Jesus' life, it's obvious he cared deeply for the materially poor. He cared deeply, had a soft spot in in his heart for people in material poverty. That's why we as a church partner with local organizations like ACTS, Christian Ministry Centers in Batesburg, Megiddo Dream Station down in the valley. We partner with them because they bring hope to those in material poverty. And it's not just about feeding the hungry and and housing the homeless. Those are great things to do, but that's not what God has called us to do, just to do good things. He's called us to bring a message of hope and you do that by providing the needs to open a door to share the true message of hope. But listen, material poverty is not the only poverty that exists in our communities. You don't have to look far to see an epidemic of moral poverty in our culture today. People who are trapped believing the lie that life is all about them and that you do whatever you gotta do to get whatever you need, to step on anybody you need to step on to make sure that your life is good, break any rules, violate any moral standards because it's all about you. And listen, we look at those people like the enemy Jesus said they are the target audience. They are the people we are to bring the message of hope to, that there's more to life than just living for yourself. There's a third type of poverty that exists all around us, and that is spiritual poverty. People who don't personally know and experience God's love, they may be living moral lives, but they are living empty lives. Life without a savior, without a sense of purpose and calling in their lives. Mother Teresa, who spent her entire adult life working with the poorest of the poor, lepers in Calcutta, India. At the end of her life, she would say the greatest problem in the world today is not material poverty, it is spiritual poverty. And Jesus said, that's who I'm bringing hope to. Hope to the have-nots. And being the church means we need to do that as well. So let me ask you, who are the have-nots in your world? Do you know somebody who's struggling financially and under-resourced? A single parent who's trying to get by? Do you know somebody struggling with moral poverty, bought into the lie that it's all about what they can get from themselves? Do you know any people that have spiritual poverty that are doing life without the hope of the Savior? Those people are not in your life by accident. They are part of God's mission for your life to bring hope to the have-nots. Number two, the second thing we have to do to live on mission is bring comfort to the letdown. Living on mission requires bringing comfort to the letdown. Jesus said, look, I came not only for those who struggle externally, 
I have come for those who struggle internally. Those who have been let down by the people and circumstances of their lives. Those who have experienced rejection from the very people who were supposed to love and care for them. Those who wake up every day overwhelmed by discouragement and disappointment in their lives. Jesus calls them the brokenhearted. And notice what he says, second part of verse 18. He says, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. There was no shortage of brokenhearted people in Jesus' day. Between the oppressive Roman government and the stifling religious rules and burdens by their spiritual leaders, most of the people in Jesus' world were overwhelmed emotionally by their lives. And Jesus said, I have come to heal them. And he has called us to do the same. Listen, when I look around in our community, when I listen and talk to people, it is painfully obvious that not only are we dealing with the effects of a physical pandemic, but we are dealing with the wake of an emotional pandemic that follows it. Fear, anxiety, depression, suicide, substance abuse are at an all time high. And I'm not talking about Chicago, California, and New York. I'm talking about in our neighborhoods. I'm talking about in our schools, in our communities, on our streets. Jesus said, I've come to heal them. And he's called us to do the same. Listen, we can sit around and argue on Facebook about what's causing all this stuff in our community, or we can complain about how soft we have become as a nation, or we can join Jesus on a mission to bring healing to the brokenhearted. That is why we as a church, through our care and counseling ministry, provide not only professional Christian counseling for those in need, but we also provide support groups like Grief Share and Divorce Care. Because who better to come alongside somebody walking through the hell of divorce than somebody who's walked through that hell? Who better to come alongside somebody who's lost a child or a spouse than somebody who's lost a spouse? That is why we as a church are partnering with the Overflow Foundation to host a one-day conference called Mental Health in the Modern Church, Friday, November 5th. Why are we doing that? Because it's an opportunity to equip us as Christ followers to be on mission to heal the brokenhearted in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and in our places of work. That is the whole purpose of that, to prepare us to be able to live out this mission of bringing healing to the brokenhearted. I wanna encourage you to be a part of that. Sign up, go online if you are, but also understand this is not just for our church. Our desire is to quit churches throughout the Southeast, all over the CSRA. Anybody and everybody who is willing to come so that they can be equipped to care and have compassion and practical help for people who struggle with their mental health. Because whether we wanna recognize it or admit it or not, one in five of us will have a diagnosable mental illness in any given year. That's one in five. 
right here in our congregations. That's one in five in our schools, in our communities, in our neighborhood. And we can either sit silently with our hands stuck in our ears and pretend that it's not destroying the lives of individuals and families, or we can get on mission with Jesus and be a part of healing the brokenhearted. God has called us. It is our mission to bring comfort to the let down. Listen, living on mission is about bringing hope to the have-nots, healing to the brokenhearted, and then thirdly, it's about offering insight to the locked up and the shut out. Offering insight to the locked up and the shut out. See, Jesus said, I came not just for the hurting and the hopeless, I came for those who are facing barriers. Barriers that keep them in and barriers that keep them shut out. Notice verse 18. Jesus said, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind. Did you know that this morning there are 40 million people on this planet who are enslaved? 40 million people enslaved today. That's more than in any other time in human history. That's more people in slavery than there ever was at the height of the Atlantic slave trade. Right now today, there are small children enslaved in Ghana, West Africa to work on fishing boats in the lake. In South Asia, there are young women and girls who are enslaved to sex traffickers. There are young boys in India who are forced to work in brick factories, chained together, sweat shops. There is slavery. But listen, human traffic and slavery is not just something that occurs in the third world. It's happening right here in our communities. In fact, I read just this past week that the CSRA is one of the hotbeds of the entire nation for human trafficking. Did you know that? I don't know whether it's because of our location, you know, between Charlotte and Atlanta. I don't know if it's because all of the military bases. I don't know what the cause of it is. I just know it's happening right here in our community. And God says, do something about it. That's why as a church, we partner globally with organizations like International Justice Mission, Seven Sisters and, and Swally, these organizations all work in this issue of human trafficking. That's why we partner locally right here in the CSRA with iCare, a phenomenal organization that rescues and provides residential care, a safe place to stay for women and children who've been rescued out of traffic and the help they need psychologically, emotionally, physically, educationally to be able to live the life that God created them to live. God has called us to bring insight to the locked up. But it's not just about bringing freedom to those who are in physical bondage. We've been called to bring freedom to those who are in invisible bondage. Those who are trapped by the chains of addiction. Those who are trapped by their own poor financial choices and a a hole of debt that they can't get themselves out of. We're called to those who are imprisoned by their own fears. All of us have people like that in our lives and Jesus has called us to bring freedom to them. And the good news is you don't have to figure out how to bring freedom to them on your own. You can leverage being a part of a church family 
You can connect somebody with a home group so that they can find a safe place and safe people to begin to open up and share so their secrets don't have to keep making them sick. You can connect them with Celebrate Recovery where they can find freedom from addiction to the truth of God's word. You can connect people with Financial Peace University where they can be taught basic biblical financial principles that will allow them to get out of debt and find freedom in their finances. That's a part of living out the mission that Jesus calls us to. But notice Jesus also says we are to give sight to the blind because he came to give sight to the blind. And if you read the gospels, you'll see there are three or four occasions where Jesus physically healed people who were blind. But that's nothing compared to the number of people that Jesus helped who were blind to their own destructive behaviors and choices. The number of people he helped who were blind to their own sin and their need for a savior. Listen, my point is this. You may not know personally a victim of human trafficking. You may not know somebody who's physically blind, but we all know people who are locked up and shut out in life. And how do we bring freedom and sight? With truth. With truth. The insight of God's truth. That's where freedom comes from. That's why Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm not talking about running around beating people over the head with the Bible because of their failures. I'm talking about connecting relationally with them to open the door to an opportunity to teach them the life-changing truth of God's word, to get to a place relationally with locked up and locked out people so that you can put your arm around them and say, hey, that might not be a good decision. Hey, have you thought about doing it differently? God has called us to offer insight to the locked up and the shut out because truth sets them free. And then finally, number four, the fourth thing we have to do to live on mission is to stand up for the kicked around. Living on mission requires standing up for the kicked around. Jesus said, I've come for the weak, the marginalized, the vulnerable. Jesus calls them the oppressed. Notice the very last part of verse 18. Jesus says, he has sent me to set the oppressed free. Oppression is a word that gets used an awful lot in our culture today. It's like we're all competing in our little groups to, to try to be the most oppressed, the most put down, the most kicked around. And hear me, I'm not trying to minimize the oppression that occurs even in our own nation to groups of people. What I am trying to say is that I believe the greatest oppression is not that that happens to nebulous groups of people. I believe the greatest oppression is those, is those that happen to individual people. People who can't defend themselves. People who have no voice, no power, no influence in their world. One of my favorite lines from one of my favorite movies, A Few Good Men. It's that part towards the end of the movie when Demi Moore's character is asked, why do you like these two Marines, Dawson and Downey? Why do you like them? Why do you think so highly of them? And I'll never forget her answer. She said, because they stand on a wall and they say nothing it's gonna hurt you tonight, not on my watch. Church, Jesus has called us to stand on that wall, 
to speak for those who have no voice, to leverage our power and our influence for those who have none. That's why James, the brother of Jesus and the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem said, true religion is to care for widows and orphans. Why? Because they're vulnerable. That's why Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you're doing for me. That's why as a church, we partner locally with my father's house, Stand at the Crossroad Ministries because they provide safe housing and support for vulnerable women and children right here in our community. But listen, church, that's also why we invest in our Kids Creek Children's Ministry and our Centerpoint Student Ministry because every week across all of our campuses, we have hundreds of children and students as a part of our church family and some of them come from homes where they are vulnerable. They are vulnerable to abuse and neglect. But listen, it's not just those kids from those homes. Every one of our children and every one of our teenagers are vulnerable in this culture that we live in today. Every one of them are vulnerable to internet predators because of their naivete or their rebellious attitude. I mean, how many times do we have to read about another young girl lured away by an online predator? Those are vulnerable people. And we are called to stand on the wall. That's why maybe if you don't have a place to serve within the church family, maybe you're being the church, maybe you're living on mission as volunteering to serve in Kids Creek or Centerpoint because the best way to protect vulnerable children and teenagers is to connect them with a safe, caring adult who can walk through the landmines of their life, a safe place where maybe they'd share Maybe they'd tell what they were dealing with or or what they're doing online. Listen, I don't know what living on mission looks like for you, but I believe a big part of it is standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves. And so as I close, I just want you to know my hope, my prayer is that over these next six weeks, we will not just learn about what it means to be the church, but each one of us would be willing to take a next step to be the church wherever God places us and whoever he brings into our lives. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, I'm so thankful. Thankful for the clarity you provide of what it means to follow you of what it means to live out our faith beyond our Sunday morning gatherings and our small groups, but what it means to be your hands and feet, to live on mission for you. But Jesus, I am painfully aware that none of us can do this in our own strength. We need your spirit to fill us, to lead us, to guide us, to show us and to empower us to live out the message of hope for the hurting and broken, for the lives that are being stacked up like bodies in a war. Oh God, may it break our hearts. May we be moved to act, led by you, empowered by your spirit, 
and be a part of living a mission and a life that's truly worth living. So move among us. As we leave this place today, show us how to be the church wherever you take us. It's in your name we pray, amen.